My name is Kevin. I am our Aldergrove campus pastor, and uh, anytime someone sees me these days, they're saying, how are things at Aldergrove? And what they mean is, how are the renovations going? And so uh, that's what everyone's asking me about. I'll tell you, apparently trades get busy in the summer, and calling them last minute isn't always the quickest way to get things done, but things are moving along. Uh, part of the floor that we're really excited about is getting polished starting tomorrow, which is a big deal. Uh, but this is what it looks like right now. It's very empty. There are no uh, real usable floors, um, but it's fantastic. This will very soon be our home and a great place for, for us to do church every week, as well as to be a ministry hub and center for serving the community of Aldergrove and East Langley. So I am so excited. Even though that we're not uh, having services yet, we're, we're assembling teams, uh, we're starting to do community events. I invite you to come participate with us. And I'm still optimistic, though some people think less, but I am still optimistic that we will be launching on October 9th, which is Thanksgiving, just like we intended. 55 days. You saw what it looked like. We'll, we'll be fine, right? Everything's good. Um, how hard could it be? So, um, how many people here have seen the movie Mean Girls? Seen Mean Girls? Who will admit to having seen the movie Mean Girls? Yes, okay. So Mean Girls is a, a great movie from the, the mid-2000s, and it's about a girl named Katie who is the new girl at her high school. She's new, she comes to school, and like everyone when they're new to school, it's like, where am I going to fit in? What social group am I going to be a part of? And Katie seems to luck out because the most popular kids in school are like, Katie, come be one of us. Now, if you've seen the movie, what do they call the popular group? What are their name? What's their name? Plastics. The Plastics. Thank you, Kevin Redekop. <laughs> the Plastics. And so the Plastics are the cool kids in their high school. And now I remember the cool kids in my high school. Now here's something I find interesting, and I've thought about this as an adult. Had a conversation about it last night. The cool kids in high school, I didn't necessarily even like that much. I didn't necessarily think they were awesome, but I still wanted them to validate me and to approve me and to think good things about me. Even though they weren't people that I cared about so much, because they were at the top of the social pecking order, I still wanted them to think I was cool, even though I didn't even really like them. And I think that that's super interesting, because, okay, let's back up to the movie. So the plastics are the teen royalty. They're the people at the top of their pecking order. And, and not only are they at the top, but they kind of determine where other people are in the social pecking order. It's invisible, but it's very real. And so Katie... It's, it, to start, you think is doing awesome because she's kind of taken under the wing of the plastics and their leader, Regina George. And they befriend her, and in doing so, they say, okay, Katie, this is how you dress now. These are the people that you're friends with. Here are the people that you're not friends with. Here's the words that you use. Here's where you shop. Here's where you do things. And they teach her how to be one of the cool kids. And this seems fantastic, except it actually very quickly goes awful for Katie. See, being a part of the plastics has a lot of rules. There's a lot of do's and don'ts, people you can associate with. Um, and, and it's actually all about kind of following the rules of the group. And in following the group, it's not just about like hurting other people and keeping them down. It's actually also painful for you because there's backstabbing, there's betrayal, there's lying, there's um, all these kind of manipulation things going on. One of the things that the plastics do is they actually have what they call a burn book, which they keep a list of everyone's like accidents and mistakes 
and things that could be used against them for humiliation or manipulation. And so they keep track of these things. And even though they're the ones setting the rules, Katie finds out that it's actually awful being at the top as well because there's a lot of work that goes into it and there is a lot of loneliness because of how awful you have to treat other people. So she discovers that she doesn't want to be one of the cool kids. That's actually the worst. Even though they're jerks, everyone is still envious of them and then she starts calling them out on it. And she starts to say the plastics are a toxic group. Anyway, hilarity ensues. There's lots of lessons at the end of it. But I actually think it's a good illustration for us today. Jesus has been talking to the Pharisees, who are kind of the religious elite. They're the cool kids. People don't even necessarily like the Pharisees, but they're at the top of the social pecking order, the spiritual pecking order. And they determine where you fit in by how closely you follow their rules. And this is not good. And so I think that as we think about kind of that high school phase, at least for me, it was helpful to understand this because Jesus is saying that the Pharisees have tricked you into thinking that they know what spirituality is supposed to look like. The Pharisees have deceived you into thinking that they have the keys to heaven and the way for you to connect with God is by looking like them and acting like them and thinking like them. But Jesus, over the last several weeks, has actually been calling out the Pharisees' righteousness as dangerous and an ugly facade that is fake religion. So we're actually in a really heavy section in Luke. Um, The last couple of weeks have been largely Jesus talking about a broken religious system and about how awful the Pharisees are. He's saying that under the the leadership of the Pharisees, it's become political, it's become about power, it's become about man-made rules that aren't part of God's word, and it's about proving your righteousness. And so today we're going to see him turn his attention to his followers. So the last four weeks, he's been talking about this broken system and how horrible the religious leaders are. And today he addresses the crowd and his followers. And we're going to have Brittany read the text on the screen here. Luke chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear of the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, Whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. This is the word of the Lord. 
Okay, that didn't sound like a really enthusiastic, thanks be to God. I think sometimes we read the scripture, and there are some heavy things in here. There are three statements in here that have caused me a lot of grief and a lot of anxiety, and when I've talked to people, them as well. The first one's about, like, all your secrets are going to get told from the rooftops. It's like, well, that sounds awful. And then the next one is, uh, don't be afraid of people because it's God that will throw you into hell. And it's like, oh, that sounds really scary too. And then lastly, it's like, if you, if you say, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you can't be forgiven. And it's like, oh my goodness, I don't even really understand what that means. I hope I haven't done it. And so like, when, when I've read this text over the years, it's been a source of anxiety and stress. And guys, I want to share with you today. I have studied this text this week. And I have fallen in love with this text. This is a text that is about good news, and it's about fearlessness, it's about hope, and it's about the amazing love that God has for us. And so when we read this, and when we unpack it today, what I believe it really means, I want you to know that this is an encouraging scripture for us today. So if you've always looked at this as a challenge, or an anxiety, or fear-producing thing, because of these three harsh statements, I want you to know it is good news. Okay, are you with me? Sound all right? Okay, let's, let's kind of figure out the good news. Okay, to understand that, we actually need to know the context. I'm going to go back with the last four sermons that we've had here. So quick recap. We're going to go way back. Does anyone remember Spencer preaching about a month ago? And he was talking about uh, the, the, the kind of parable that Jesus had is that there's a strong man but that an even stronger man is going to come and overtake that house. And that's a, a kind of an image of God coming to reclaim his kingdom. But the religious leaders look at the work of God and call it Satan. When they see God working, they say, that's not God, that's Satan. Okay? So that's kind of the first thing. And so you have these leaders that are, are taking this, yeah, they're calling God's work Satan's work. And then the week after that, Tim was sharing, and Tim talked about how not all lights are equal, and about how the, the Pharisees had like, they thought, they said it was light in them, but really it was darkness. And they were trying to convince other people that what they were doing was the light, that they had light in them, but really it was darkness. And Jesus is saying, don't be mistaken and tricked into thinking the Pharisees' darkness is actually light. That is not light. And then the week after that, Corey was sharing, and, and, and Jesus starts this really long passage where we actually took two sermons to talk about it, where he calls out the Pharisees in a harsh way. And, and Corey talked about how leaders, spiritual leaders, are supposed to be humble and genuine and outward focused, and that that was not the Pharisees. And so Jesus is fully ripping into these Pharisees through the rest of Corey's sermon and what Ben was preaching about last week. And, and so Jesus starts like... He starts saying, you Pharisees are awful leaders, except he does it with way more like snap or pizzazz. I don't even know what to call it because he is saying that you look good on the outside, but you are rotten on the inside. You've polished the outside, but you're dead inside. You've neglected the poor and the needy for your own selfishness. He says, woe to you Pharisees, woe to you leaders, because you, you will tithe down to the mint that you grow in your garden, but it means nothing because you are awful people that are all about your own selfishness. In fact, you're dead inside. You're like unmarked graves. And, and Jesus is just kind of laying into the Pharisees in this really harsh way. And the Pharisees are like, whoa, Jesus, time out. And they're like, Jesus, do you realize that this is insulting to us? <laughs> yes, that should be hilarious. And Jesus is like, you're finally starting to get it. Yes, this should be insulting to you because what you are doing is awful. So then he keeps going. He's like, do you realize that you 
place burdens on people and you do nothing to help them. You basically killed the prophets and the messengers of God. You have stolen from the people the ability to understand what true faith is supposed to be like. You have made it about yourselves. Yes, Pharisees, you should be very insulted. He's been criticizing the system they created, and then he criticizes them right to his face. And then a crowd starts coming. Imagine, imagine being there at this point. Okay, so, so it, it, our text today talked about a crowd of thousands coming that were trampling on one another. I think this means what's happening is actually a pretty big deal. That this isn't just some like interesting teaching or like something new going on. It's like, no, this is fantastic because people hear Jesus saying that the, the system is broken. The Pharisees are no longer legitimate leaders. They're awful leaders. And it's like, guys, we have to come see what Jesus is doing. Jesus is picking a fight and having a throwdown with the leaders. He's calling them out. And this is good news. We have to go check this out. And so literally thousands of people. And imagine how good news this must be for thousands of people to show up and start trampling one another to hear what Jesus has to say. He's putting the bullies in their place. Everyone wants to see it. Everyone is showing up. And Jesus is tearing down a burdensome and broken religious system. And this is such good news, everyone. What's happening today is such an amazing piece of scripture. Okay, so let's actually dive into it. See what's saying. So we're going to start at verse 1. And it says, Meanwhile, a crowd of many thousands, like I was saying, had gathered. They were trampling on one another. So Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. So again, he's transitioning away from the Pharisees and talking to his followers. He says, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear of the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Okay, so let's first talk about hypocrisy here. Um, hypocrisy actually originally was like a term that had to do with like productions and plays, and it was like you were a hypocrite if you were pretending to be someone that you weren't. It was like putting on a mask and acting in a way that isn't your true self. It's about insincerity, and it's about uh, being one way on the outside and being different on the inside. And so Jesus is saying the hypocrisy of the Pharisees is that they try and look a certain way, but inside they're dead. And I think that we can be guilty of this in the church, where we try and look a certain way. We're actually broken inside. We have pain. We have hurt. We have things that we're going through. And when we come to church, we try and look like we have it all together. But Jesus is saying that the teaching of these Pharisees is actually like yeast that being mixed in with dough. You'd use just a little bit of yeast. I don't bake, but some of you do. You probably know better than I do. But you take a little bit of yeast and you put it in the dough, and just a little bit will change and make a big difference in how that dough works. And if it's bad yeast, it can actually poison and contaminate the whole batch of dough. And so the yeast that Jesus is talking about is the effects of the Pharisees' false teaching and selfish teaching. David Garland says it like this. He says, The Pharisees appear to be faithful interpreters of God's will, but their inner corruption and false piety contaminate all they do and spread a contagion to all who follow them. Their interpretations are false. Disciples must disassociate themselves completely from their unhealthy teaching. Failing to heed this warning will be injurious to their spiritual health. See, there are a few things in this passage that are like yeast that have actually tainted some of my thinking. And when I've read this, I've actually read this passage with a lot of fear, with a lot of uh, anxiety. 
But again, like I said, I want you to know this is good news. So here's kind of the first thing. What is hidden will be made known. I've always looked at this verse as being about like, okay, all the bad things I have ever said about someone are going to be sh- like exclaimed from the rooftops. That sounds awful. And that everything that anyone has ever said bad about me, I'm going to hear. And I'm like, why would we do this? This sounds like a horrible thing to do to build up the body. Good news. Most commentators understand this very differently than I have always understood it. They will say the the most common interpretation is that it is the corruption of the religious system that is going to be exposed for a lie. That the truth will be exclaimed that this is false, that these leaders are not in fact um, following God, that they are scheming, that they've been kind of like telling secrets in the back rooms and they've been like conniving to try and create a religious system that keeps them at the top and it will be exposed as powerless. That is good news. The second thing that people think it might mean is kind of what uh, is often referred to in other parts as the messianic secret or the fact that people didn't realize exactly what kind of king and messiah Jesus was going to be, but that that would be revealed. And so that will be something that, that is made known. And so that this verse is actually less likely about every hurtful word that has ever been spoken, being spoken to people that make us feel awful, and actually more about useless religion being exposed to the power of Jesus. The truth will not be a whisper. It will be proclaimed from the rooftops. That is good news. Okay, verse 4. I tell you, friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has the authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Okay, uh, kind of before we get into the elephant there. um, This verse starts with Jesus calling... These people who? What? His friends. He's saying, you are my friends. In the Greco-Roman world, this is significant. It referred to a close association with. It was kind of like, if you were a friend of Caesar's, you were under the protection of Caesar. So that if someone messed with you, it was like messing with Caesar, and Caesar would come in and obliterate them. It was like, yeah, being a friend of Caesar's is the best. And Jesus is saying, being a friend of mine is the best. Because I'm here to protect you. I'm not here to like throw you into hell. I'm here to protect you. And so I actually think that this verse is not referring to the people Jesus is talking to, but to the Pharisees and the broke system that was right there. See, this is a verse about not being afraid of God. You are his friend. See, the power belongs to God. The Pharisees have no authority to throw you into hell. They have no power to determine the fate of your soul. Only God does, and he is your friend. Your final place, or however you want to describe it, that is up to God, not this Pharisee system that makes you feel bad because you can't attain righteousness. They say you have to do this, and that's impossible. You don't have to measure up to that. They don't determine your fate. And so this is actually really good news, that you don't have to fear their teaching. It was said of a Scottish theologian named John Knox as his coffin was being lowered into his grave. Here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of man. I think that's the kind of fear that we're supposed to have here. And then Jesus kind of doubles down on this idea. In verse 6, he says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? 
Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. You are God's children. We are God's children. We are known by God. Every detail of our lives, the most insignificant, minute details, and pains, and fears, and struggles, and joys, all of those are known by God, and He loves you, and He cares for you. That is such good news for us to know. Um, Side note, this really doesn't have anything. I just came across this, and I thought it was interesting. Do we have any red-haired people here today? Do you have red hair, anyone? No one wants to admit it, but okay, no, okay. Red hair, if you have red hair, chances are you have 90,000 hairs on your head. Now, if you have dark hair, chances are you have about 120,000 hairs on your head, so that's quite a bit more. But blonde people have the most hair with 145,000 hairs on their head, every one of them known by God. Doesn't have anything to do with sermon, but we were talking about hair, so I wanted to share that. Fun fact. Okay, so N.T. Wright summarizes this very well. He says, the real enemy is the one who longs to cast people into Gehenna. And Gehenna was the name of of Jerusalem's smoldering rubbish heap or dump. And the word was already used as an image of hellfire. He says, this cannot mean that one should fear God, though in some senses that is a good and right thing to do. It means that one should recognize who the ultimate enemy is. In this picture, God is not the enemy to be feared. He is the one to trust. The one who values his children more highly than a whole flock of sparrows, who has the very hairs of our heads all numbered. You have immeasurable value to God. This is good news. Okay, verse 8. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others... The Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God, but whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And anyone, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Now, here's the part that I think has tripped more Christians up than anything else. But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Ooh, that's a tough one, you guys. Again, one of the most kind of feared verses in the Bible I actually think it's interesting because Jesus isn't talking about forgivable and unforgivable sins here. This, this phrase, this line seems to kind of pop out of nowhere. Like, how does it fit in this context? It, it seems a little bit jarring and out of place. So let's, let's see what it means to blaspheme. Uh, it means to like insult, slander, curse. Um, the definition that I came across that I think is very helpful is to speak profanely of sacred things. So to take something sacred and holy good and profane it in the way you speak. Now, I just kind of want to summarize again our last few weeks of sermons that kind of, I think, lead into what's happening here. If we go back to the story of Jesus and the strong man, the criticism Jesus has is seeing the miracles of God and calling them the miracles of Satan or the work of Satan, taking the sacred and making it profane. And then when Tim was talking about how not all light is the same and how the Pharisees were taking something that was actually dark and calling it light, they were taking something sacred and making it profane. Pharisees and taking their positions of spiritual leadership who are corrupt, who are political, who are making it about themselves, who are weighing people down with heavy burdens. Jesus is saying that they're taking something sacred and making it profane. And so this is a warning that I believe is directed to the Pharisees much more than directed to the crowds that Jesus just called his friends and that he just said, God knows the hairs on your head and you are so valuable to him. Here's how I think it would have been felt 
as Jesus spoke it to the crowd, that he's talking to the crowd that he loves, that he has just called his friends. And I think he's saying, like, do you see the Pharisees over there? Those people that I just ripped into and called horrible leaders, that the ones who have been oppressing you for their own gain, the ones who have seen God work, they have seen the miracles of God and they attribute it to Satan. They have replaced the light with darkness. They can't be saved. Not like that. When a heart is so turned off to the things of God and so moving in the wrong direction, a heart like that can't be saved. N.T. Wright describes it. This is the longest uh, quote maybe I've ever used, but it's a really good one. And we're talking about something heavy here, so I want to like, yeah, here we go, Mr. Wright. In the midst of all of this comes a dire warning which many have found disturbing. One may be forgiven for speaking against the Son of Man, but will not be forgiven for blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. In Mark and Matthew, the saying occurs when Jesus has been accused of casting out demons by the prince of demons, kind of like the strong man story. If you say that the Spirit's work is in fact the work of the devil, you have begun to call evil good and good evil, a moral cul-de-sac without turning room. And here in Luke 12, the intention seems even broader. Someone who sees Jesus at work and misunderstands what is going on may speak against him only to discover the truth and repent. But if someone denounces the work of the Spirit, such a person is cut off by the very action from profiting from that work. Once you declare that a spring of fresh water is in fact polluted, you will never drink from it again. Now, if you only remember one thing I say today, I want it to be this last part of N.T. Wright's quote. The one sure thing about this saying is that if someone is anxious about having committed the sin against the Holy Spirit, their anxiety is a clear sign that they have not. <sighs> take a breath, people, take a breath, because again, this has caused so much anxiety for so many people. See, the unforgivable sin is not a sentence that you say in anger or frustration or out of ignorance. It's not something that you say one time and it forever separates you from God. That's not what it is. We, um, we have a, a phrase, it's actually the title of a book that we often use to describe what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus or a follower of Jesus or a Christian. And, and the phrase is a long obedience in the same direction. We've heard that, a lot of us have. A long obedience in the same direction. That's what it means to follow God. I believe it's fair to say that the unforgivable sin is a long disobedience in the wrong direction. A long disobedience in the wrong direction, moving away from God. The unforgivable sin is to see the work of God, be told that it's the work of God and the truth, and to then reject it. That kind of heart can't be forgiven. But the good news about our God is that He's a God that transforms hearts. That is the good news of the gospel. Do you guys remember a guy named Saul? Saul was a pretty bad guy in the Bible. He went around persecuting Christians, and he blasphemed the Holy Spirit. That's kind of what his job was. And he went around denying the work of God, denying the name of Jesus, denying the work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus had an encounter with him and opened his eyes up to see the work of God. And once that happened, Saul was welcomed back like the prodigal son and was a leader in the church. And so I don't think Jesus is saying, if you do this one-time sin, you can never be forgiven. But that one sin puts you in a state where God can't forgive you. For me, as a, as a follower of Jesus, I am so thankful that I am a forgiven child of God because when God looks at me, he doesn't see like Kevin in all my sin. He sees Kevin 
and I am covered in the righteousness of Jesus. I have the forgiveness and the righteousness of Jesus. And so when God sees me, he sees me as beautiful and as perfect and as clean and as sinless because of the amazing work that Jesus has done for me. And I remember as a a younger Christian, I remember thinking, oh man, I'm supposed to confess all my sins. So what happens? What happens if I do something bad and I die before I confess my sins? Am I going to hell? And I remember being scared of that. And I was like, oh, what does it mean? Because we're supposed to confess and repent. And what happens if if I don't make it. And I think that this is what it means to be covered in the forgiveness of Jesus. That, I don't know if it's the right term to use, but I'd be like, those are like forgiven sins as we commit them because we are under the righteousness of Jesus. But if you are in a place where you are actively rejecting and choosing to move away from the Holy Spirit, that kind of sin cannot be forgiven. Because you have rejected him, you have rejected his forgiveness and repentance is impossible. William Barclay says it like this. He says, you can lose the faculty of recognizing God by repeatedly refusing God's word, by repeatedly taking our own way, by repeatedly shutting our eyes to God and closing our ears to him. We can come to a stage where we do not recognize him when we see him, when to us evil becomes good and good becomes evil. That's what happened to the scribes and the Pharisees. They had so blinded and deafened themselves to God that when he came, they called him the devil. Oh, man. Okay, let's go to the last part. Okay, Uh, verse 11. When you are brought before the synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Okay, in the Gospel of John, um, John's favorite word to to kind of identify the Holy Spirit is the word paraclete. And the word parakletos means someone who stands by you to help you. It's your defender. It could be a witness, like in a kind of a legal thing or a lawyer, someone, someone that has your best intentions, someone that is your friend, someone that is standing by you to help. And the image here is not of a legal court in a Roman setting. It's in a religious court where the Pharisees and the leaders might bring people before them and say, you're not following religion the way we said to follow religion. You're not doing all the rules that we told you to do. And Jesus is saying here, don't worry about them. They do not speak for me anymore. Don't even worry about how you're going to defend yourselves because what they say does not matter. They don't speak for me. Stop listening to the Pharisees. Be careful who you're following. Now, even though they may seem to be these good religious authorities, stop listening to them. It's it's poisonous yeast that's infecting you. They may even persecute you to the point of killing you. But even if they do, don't worry. They have no effect over your eternal soul. Guys, this is a gospel passage. This is a good news passage about the the religious establishment that is corrupt and broken and leaders that have their own self-interest in mind that are trying to oppress people and and steal the, the light of God from people's hearts. And Jesus is saying, they can't do it. They can't do that. This is good news passage. And so as we kind of take this text and think about, okay, so what are we supposed to do with it? I think that each of us needs to be attention, pay attention to who we're following to what leaders we're giving authority in our lives to, to where we learn about our spirituality. We actually all have spiritual leaders in our lives. Think of pastors or elders, 
Maybe you have Christian authors that you read. There's influencers online with lots of different social media. Um, there's news outlets. There's uh, well-known Bible teachers and theologians, small group leaders or life group leaders, parents, family members. There's so many people that influence our walk with Jesus because of the things they say and because of their actions. And because of this, we can often make the mistake of aligning with a person or a teaching or an idea instead of being aligned with Jesus. Because there are so many voices out there. I mean, you can pick any news, news cycle, any day, there's like a news cycle going on. And if you listen to the news, there's a million different takes on how that's happening. And if you take any topic in Christian circles, there's a million different ideas and voices about what the right interpretation of that is. And so Jesus is telling us as his followers to find trusted spiritual leaders, but to not let them replace the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus in your life. Follow the Spirit and the way of Christ, not people. We need to filter everything we believe and know about God through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, to be honest, I wrestle with this because I'm a pastor, I'm a spiritual leader, and I think, oh my goodness, why am I doing this? Seems like a lot of responsibility, and if I get it wrong, it doesn't sound good. Um, but I'm so thankful that I, I have the, the grace and the mercy of God. But as we kind of filter this all through, there are so many kind of murky and convoluted issues in our lives right now that have to do with spiritual, with social, with economic, political things. And it can make that there are so many voices that it can be hard to hear the voice of the paraclete, of the Holy Spirit guiding and directing us. We want to educate ourselves so that we understand the nuance of these things, but we also want to be submitting ourselves to the leading of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to be swayed by false leaders and Pharisees who look and sound like they have it all together, who we think are the keepers of morality, but who are actually drawing us further away from the kingdom. Let's just follow Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Like, let that be the number one. What I say, what Matthew says, what whoever says, like, as a pastor, there are things that I believe different about God than I did five or ten years ago, and I actually think that's part of being an apprentice to Jesus, that we're constantly growing and we're understanding things in a new way, and, it, and it's kind of tricky because it's not that we just believe whatever seems good at the time. We're, we're committed to truth and understanding the scriptures and that being the authority in our lives, but also we want to keep growing and understanding things in new ways. So I think a big takeaway for us over the last couple of sermons are is that teachers, we might get it wrong sometimes. We might make mistakes. And I don't want to pass the responsibility, but let's make sure again that we are following Jesus because just because I have a microphone, just because someone got a book published or has a social media account with lots of followers doesn't mean that we're always right. So let's make sure that we're in the word, that we understand who Jesus is and that we're learning directly from him. I was talking to one of our elders a while ago, and uh, we were just having a conversation, and the comment went something like this. It was like, the older I get, the more I realize I just don't know. In my 20s, I knew all the answers. I wish I was that smart now. This person was not in their 20s, by the way, and I just think it's interesting to know that, yeah, the older we get, the more we understand about God, the more beauty and the more layers and, and beautiful it all is. But Jesus says, don't be afraid. A passage like this with the unforgivable sin, the warning of being thrown into hell, all your secrets being told, can be a lot. But I want you to know that this is a good news passage. The good news of Jesus is always good news. 
I want you to think of our Heavenly Father more like a good parent than a condemning judge. Yes, there will be times of rebuke and correction, and there will be things maybe that we disagree with or that we don't like, but the purpose, the goal of our Father is to build up, to restore us, and to never tear us down. We don't need to be afraid, because the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, is with us, because you are never abandoned or alone. Now, if you've been following Jesus, and these types of verses have scared you, because you feel like maybe you've done something to separate yourself from God, or you feel like that the, the image of Christianity that's been modeled to you is something that you can't attain, and you're like, oh, I wish I could be that good, but I feel like I'm always falling short, and I'm always falling short. I want you to know that this is a passage that's actually supposed to bring you freedom and hope and life and joy to know that you are loved by God, that he knows the hairs on your head, that he is your friend, and that no one else, all of these kind of man-made um, uh, hoops that we're supposed to jump through or images that we're supposed to kind of build up to, that those things don't matter because it is God who has our, our souls, has our lives, has our hearts, has our eternity in his hands, and he loves us. He is a good father, and he calls you forgiven, loved, and cared for. If you've had some of these lies in your head that you're not good enough, that you have done something that has taken you far away from God, that maybe you can never come back. If you think of God as an angry God that you're just scared is going to throw you into hell, or that is going to expose all your secrets and tell everyone about how awful you are, I want you to know that those are lies. If that's something you believe or have believed, I want to encourage you to just bring that before God. We have an amazing prayer team here, and they would love to just pray truth over you. And so if you maybe have some influence, some of that yeast of those lies that have actually caused you pain and hurt and are a and are false religion that you're trying to work up to and attain on your own, I would encourage you to spend some time praying with our prayer team, because this is a passage that is all about freedom. Okay, I want to end with a story. I, when I was a youth pastor at a different church, uh, I went to a memorial for a man in our church. Um, he passed away and he still had kids that were kind of in like youth group age and, and it was a really tough time. But to be honest, I had always been kind of critical of this man. Their family, um, they didn't come to church as often as I thought they should. And their kids never came to my youth group. And I was always like, why, why aren't you coming to my youth group? And when it was time to join a life group, they didn't join a life group. And when it was time to like serve on different teams, they didn't serve on different teams. And I remember thinking, oh, this is like a Sunday Christian family that do they actually even like, does it matter? Does it matter? And so at this man's memorial, I was shocked. I think it was the highest attended, like more people came to this person's memorial than anyone I've ever been to before. His family spoke of his deep conviction and love for Jesus and how he taught them to all be passionate followers of Jesus that today I know are still following Jesus. His co-workers, even his non-Christian co-workers, got up and talked about how he radiated God's love to them, about how he would pray for them about how he would care about the things that they were going through and that he would intercede and often to offer to pray for him. These are his non-Christian co-workers saying this. There were a number of people that got up at his memorial and talked about how this man is the person that led them to Jesus and how he prayed for them and he listened to them and, and he shared the life-changing power of Jesus with them and they were Christians because of him. And I thought this guy was a Sunday Christian that just came to church because he was supposed to and that it was nothing more than that. But I am so thankful that he followed Jesus and not my idea of religion. I wanted him to come to more meetings 
But he was out there praying for people and loving people. And so I want you to know that like this idea, the standard of what religion is supposed to look like. It's supposed to look like you are passionately following Jesus. I am so glad that he was committed to Jesus and not my idea of what religion should be. And so Lord Jesus, I pray that you would teach us how to follow you. God, help us to tear down our false ideas about what like religion and Christianity is supposed to look like, but that we would pursue relationship with you, God. Lord, I pray where there's fear. God, I pray where there's anxiety. God, scripture that has maybe scared us or made us think that you're an angry God. God, I pray that you would help us to see the truth that you call us friends that you care for us, that you know us deeply, intimately. You know every minute detail of our lives. And it's because of your bold and passionate and never-ending love for us, God. I pray that you would give us discernment as followers, as your followers, to not be influenced by harmful, condemning, self-serving teaching and ideas. And I pray where we have that yeast that has kind of taken root in us, that you would cast that out in Jesus' name that you would help us to see not religion, but a relationship with you is what we want to pursue. God, even when the crowd is going a direction that looks good, Lord, keep us following you, not the crowd. Help us to never replace your leading in our lives with a person, with a system, or a teaching, God. We give ourselves to you in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.